You ever wish you could find yourself in a, in a situation or circumstance where you knew that there was a guaranteed outcome? Like, whatever it is that you tried, you knew for a fact it would come to pass. You would be able to succeed in whatever the endeavor was. How many of us would love that? However, how many of us would want that job that we're working on? It's going to be guaranteed I'm going to make this amount of money at the end of the year. I'm going to be able to do this repair on my home. I'm going to be able to buy this car next year because this one's breaking down. All those things would be guaranteed. How many of us would want that in life? I think all of us would, right? How many of us would want a guaranteed result in our relationships with others, right? So we're, we're talking to coworkers, we're talking to friends, we're talking to family, and it's not always been so easy. But we know at the end, there's a guaranteed outcome that things are gonna work out. And they're gonna work out for God's glory. And that person that we've been trying to reach for Christ is coming to saving faith. How many of us would want that kind of guaranteed outcome. You see, if we follow Christ, we'd want to know that there are certain things that are guaranteed. Well, church, there are certain things that are guaranteed in the Word of God. Unfortunately for us, we tend to doubt. We tend to believe that what God says in His Word will not always come to pass. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. This morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's ministry in Corinth. And the guaranteed outcome that God promises him as he ministers there. We're going to be looking at three things specifically in the text. Number one, working together, verses 1 through 4. Number two, sharing Christ, verses 5 through 6. And number three, discipling converts, verses 7 through 11. Let's start off with number one, working together, verses 1 through 4. After these things, Paul departed from Athens... And went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So Paul here arrives in Corinth, which is really the largest city in Greece, if you will. Much larger than Athens, probably 20 times larger than Athens, with over 200,000 people that lived there. The city was very well known for its sexual immorality in connection to pagan practices, with a temple to Aphrodite, which was the Greek goddess of love. Which explains where many of us even today in our culture will probably get this misunderstanding of what love is. It comes right back to the city of Corinth. That abuse of what God's word says love is stems from that city. In fact, we're going to be learning a few facts of Corinth that maybe many of us have not known before. Paul in writing 1 Corinthians 13 would be directly telling the church of Corinth what they now need to oppose based on what culture defines love to be. It gives it a whole other meaning when you know that in the, in the city of Corinth, love was defined as sexual promiscuity and feeling good, if you will, rather than the way God's word defines it. You see, a lot of people quote scripture, and what, what tends to happen is they miss the context of who the writer is speaking to. 
1 Corinthians 13 takes on a whole new meaning in, as a love chapter when you understand the city that Paul is writing this to. To truly understand the church of Corinth, you need to understand that their view of love was very different than God's view of love. Their view of love was an erotic love. God's view of love was an agape love. Two very different views. That love that does not rejoice in iniquity would not be the love that's practiced in Corinth. In fact, it would be completely the opposite. But in truth, some still abuse this view of love in the progressive movement today, which is why many of us hear statements like this, love is love. How many of us have heard that? Ultimately, what that means is we get to define it in whatever way we like as long as it makes sense to us and we enjoy it. Completely contrary to what Scripture says. In fact, what's interesting, and most people don't realize this, Las Vegas is dwarfed in comparison to Corinth as the city or the sin city, if you will. It doesn't even come close to what Corinth was like. In fact, to Corinthians, meant to be immoral as the Corinthians were. The temple itself had up to a thousand prostitutes whose only practice was to connect to the divine in worship and raise money for the city and the temple. Paul connects here in this text with Aquila and Priscilla who were expelled from Rome and were more than likely needed to still make a living so they still practiced as tent makers in Corinth. Paul joins them in the same business. We're not given details to their conversion here, but it's implied here that Paul normally stayed with fellow disciples of Jesus Christ, and that's how they had that connection. Paul was a tent maker, and that made it natural to have a connection with these, uh, these people, both Aquila and Priscilla, and made it very practical for him as well. Paul stays with them and works as they did for a living. Paul didn't have his monthly support check um, coming in and was about, and he was actually about to minister to one of the most city, wicked cities of that time. Corinth is one of the most difficult places, if you will, for Paul to minister. And that's why I think as we move through the text, it's interesting the encouragement that God gives him. Paul receives support at other times. But it, some, it many times wasn't from someone that you would always expect. In fact, many times it was from folks that really we didn't even see in the text until we come to it here in, in Acts chapter 18. These tent makers give them a place to stay. They both have the same industry that they work in. You see, people you and I have things in common with may be the very help that we receive one day. And I don't know about you, but every stage in life, we have different people that come along to help us. How many of you remember when you were growing up, your parents, you'd look up to and say, listen, mom and dad, you know, they've got some things figured out. I don't know what I'm doing at times. Mom has the answer. Dad has the answer. And as we get older, we kind of flip the script on that, right? We start assuming we know, they don't. And then we become adults in our 20s. And we think we've got it all figured out. I'll, have it, I'll be able to retire early. I'll be able to save up for this. I'll be able to do that. And lo and behold, we're in our 20s, and we still haven't figured anything out. And what's interesting is during the different stages of our life, God always sends different people along to be a help or support to us. 
And unfortunately, for many, that support goes away when they decide to isolate themselves from the church. Many that grow up in the home, a Christian home, end up going to church with their parents, doing the formalities of Christianity. But as they get older and they develop to being, if you will, individuals and, and a self-made man, if you will, for, for those of us that are men, uh, we tend to find ourselves saying, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And that, that attitude bleeds into our Christian experience in the church. Unfortunately, what, what happens to many as they age, uh, they become so independent that they don't believe other Christians are needed in their life. I don't really need the church. I just have the Bible. I can just read it for myself at home. What that tells you and me ultimately is that we really don't read the Bible. Because if we read the Bible, we'd know that church is vital and important for our faith. So anybody that ever says, hey, I don't really need, I don't really need church, I've got the Bible, I already know enough for myself, they obviously don't read the Bible. Because that would be a direct, immediate connection you and I would make. If we looked over our lives, we'd notice certain people show up at particular times in our life, do they not? You have certain friends that you grew up with that are no longer your friends as time goes on, and you've developed another relationship with somebody as time goes on. There are, there are different men in my life. I know as a, as a younger man, I, I tended to look up to certain theologians. And if you will, they gave me a taste of certain doctrine that I really loved to understand more clearly. But as time goes on, and this is kind of unfortunate, but you start seeing the chinks in people's armor. I don't know if you've ever done that. You start noticing where people aren't exactly consistent in certain areas. And it's easier to find that in others, right? Let's just be honest. We, we can easily find the inconsistencies in others. And unfortunately, what happens for many of us is when we see others that God has placed in our lives, we start, as we get to know them more intimately, more deeply, we start seeing flaws. How many of you have actually met somebody, you started off and you thought they were like the perfect individual, like they, they were a great friend, there's no way there's anybody out there like them. And then as you got to know them a lot more intimately, you realized, oh wait, I was a little off on my analysis. Uh, they have a lot more flaws than I assumed. See, God's, God providentially works in all of our lives this way, where He brings people along our path at different stages of our life. And what happens here is that Paul, he exits, he, he exits Athens, enters Corinth, and God has specifically somebody just like him as a tent maker who are also disciples of Jesus Christ that come alongside him and they work together. Not everyone will be there at all times for us, church. Paul was left without his other support cast. Timothy was not with him during this time. Silas was not with him during this time. And that's just a fact of life. Unfortunately, for so many of us, we depend on people to such an extent that if they're not around, we fall apart. We all know people like that, right? They have to have that person near them. If they're not near them, they fall apart. Now, God's not asking us all to be self-reliant. What He is saying is rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on what I've given you in the Word. But he always brings somebody along to encourage us in our faith, to, con to help us in even the practical areas of life. You see, unfortunately, many of us tend to think only others aren't there for us. 
But many times we're not there for them either. Let's be perfectly honest about that. There are times that we know others need help and we just stand back and wait for someone else to be that. Sometimes we're just oblivious. We don't even know that someone needed us. You ever had that happen? Someone desperately needed you and you didn't even know that they needed you during that moment in life? We get so busy, we become inattentive to the things that God's called us to. Paul found followers of Christ who were Jewish as he was and shared in the same occupation as he did. Working as a tent maker did not stop Paul from doing ministry in the synagogue, and it shouldn't stop us either. You see, too many a follower of Jesus Christ gives up the gospel message when they start working a secular job, even though that secular job is technically sanctified because everything you do is sacred before God. There's no such thing as secular work for the believer. All of it's sacred. Because we're busy making a living, we assume that we get a pass on the gospel ministry. Because we're busy doing the things that God's called us to and providing for our family, we assume that we don't have the time to dedicate to the Word of God, to, to make it a point to make the gospel relevant in our lives. Paul didn't have his partners with him. Timothy and Silas were not around, but that didn't stop him from sharing the gospel. As a rabbi, Paul was required to have a trade as all Jewish people would do so. And it made, they made a lot of a man's ethic, work ethic, if you will, during that culture. So it wasn't enough for Paul just to be a Pharisee. He had a trade as well. Working to provide for himself didn't stop Paul from continuing in ministry. And we see here in the text, it, it continued in sharing Christ with those who would listen. Number two, sharing Christ, verses 5 through 6. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. You see, something interesting happens when Silas and Timothy finally arrive from Macedonia. It seems as though Paul was given some financial support here in this text to continue more full-time in the gospel ministry. Listen, if there's one thing that I think we miss when we read the Bible is how practical some things are that we miss clearly spelled out for us. When Paul receives more financial support, guess what that does for him? It frees him up more now to minister to that community in even greater capacity. There's something to having others come by in the ministry and encourage with their presence and even financial support. It's not necessarily about being a self-made man but not, and not being afraid to work to make a living. But in order for certain things to be done in ministry, there are those that need to be dedicate, dedicating more time to that, if you will. Which is why, if you look in the early church, remember when, the, when the, church, the early church in Jerusalem was looking for deacons, they said that those that were elders were to tarry, if you will, take the time on the word, 
So they could put more time and effort into that rather than ministering and taking care of some of the other practical things in the church. You see, Paul encourages the church in his letter to Timothy to take care of the ministers of the gospel by considering them worthy of double honor, especially those who preach and teach. Paul himself is emboldened again to share the gospel and receives strong opposition by the Jewish population to the point of turning his focus away from the Jewish audience who had now berated him. You see, Paul gave them everything he could. Paul poured out his heart to these Jewish people here in Corinth to the point of a deep hurt. You see, one of the areas that's most difficult for many of us in understanding is at what point do we stop, if you will, sharing the gospel, the truths of Scripture with others, whether we should continue or not? I don't know if you've ever been in that dilemma. Should I still tell them? Should I stop telling them? Where's the line? You see, one of the most difficult things is not letting ourselves become subjective in our connection with others and making sure we are doing as God would want from us. There's one thing I've, I've found frequently in, in my life, especially you know, in, in, in talking to those in ministry, is a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on how to approach others with the gospel. Well, I think you should do it this way. Well, I think you should do it that way. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people that have the different opinions themselves don't practice what they tell others to practice. And one of the things here in this text, and I really want us to pause and think through this, what does it mean when it comes to casting pearls before swine? And when should we continue even though we may face opposition? Because I don't know about you, I get stuck in these kind of areas at times. I have certain family members, I have certain people that I know very well, I know they know I've shared the gospel with them. And I'm always asking myself before God, God, where do I stop? Like, what do I continue doing and sharing with them? And what do I stop doing? Jesus makes a statement in Matthew 7 to not give what is sacred to dogs and not cast pearls before swine because they will trample it under their feet and turn to tear you to pieces. Scripture talks about this. So what are a few practical points on this that we can... Pull from that text in Matthew 7 and kind of just look at the example here in Acts chapter 18 with Paul. The idea is that the gospel should be given without discrimination. Listen, you and I should share the gospel with anybody that will listen. Without discrimination. We have to start there. You don't get to choose who you share the gospel with up front. If they've never heard from you, you should still share it with them. But as soon as it's evident that there is a strong hostility in what is shared from Scripture, as we see here in the text, it is important to move on to those who are more open to hearing the gospel. Now, for some of you, that may come across as, well, you're just giving up. No. What you're doing is you're literally trying to be practical in understanding that some soil's a little more fertile than others. And in some of the areas that sometimes we beat our heads in trying to reach certain people that straight up reject it, and now they're angry at us for it, we're making it worse for them and for us. 
If there's a continual badgering and sharing of the faith, the opposition in the Matthew 7 context, dogs or swine, will be enraged even further to the point of tearing you to pieces. Have you ever seen a Christian who has been so berated because they kept trying to the point of embarrassment publicly? It enraged people. Their goal will ultimately be to bring you down and no longer have a dialogue with you, believer. And there are points where you need to step back and understand that. Do not become an easy target for those who oppose the gospel message. By shoving it in their face continually, especially when you are met with hostility. You notice what I'm saying here? Hostility. There are many that may want to talk to you later again about it. That does not mean you just share it once and you walk away. I'm talking about those that viciously oppose what you're trying to share with them. You don't keep trying to pound them with it. We are to love others and want them to know the truth. But when it becomes apparent that they want nothing to do with what we are sharing, but would rather hurt us because of the message we're sharing, we're not to simply double down in order to just get trampled ourselves. This is a lot harder than it seems. Because there are certain people that you have been trying to share the gospel with for years, and you would say, you know what, they're not that strongly opposed. They're not that hostile. So I understand you should still continue to reach out. But there are also other people that would be so glad to see everything in your life fall apart because they know you're a believer. And what you don't need to do is give them more ammunition for it. Does that make sense? We're not going for a persecution complex here, church. If persecution comes, we should stand for the faith. But we need to be wise as Paul was. Paul didn't just let them stone him to death, the first city that opposed him. All right, I'm ready. He moved on to the next city. And guess what happened? Same thing, almost verbatim. In fact, people would travel from the first city to go get him in the second city. We need to be wise as Paul was in moving on to the next city, the next people group, if you will. Our goal isn't to get ourselves hurt because we keep pounding them with the gospel. Have you ever said something that you knew was going to get someone very angry? Ever done that with your spouse? You ever knew, hey, I'm about to say this, I'm going to make them so angry right now. I guess I'm the only one that does that. My wicked heart's the only one. We all do that, right? We know what we're about to say is going to cause a reaction that is going to really en enrage that person. And unfortunately, some people do that with the Bible. They do that with the gospel. And let me just perfect, make something perfectly clear. Your goal in sharing the gospel is not to prove that you're much better than they are. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians come across cocky that way. Fine, you don't want to hear it. Where's the heartbeat for people? Where's the heart that aches for an unbeliever going to hell? 
Where's that broken spirit that God gives you for those around you? A lot of people want to change the world, but their idea of changing the world is being a renegade and a rebel. Unfortunately, a lot of folks in the church today want to be rebels, not reformers. They'd rather tell everybody else how they need to fix things rather than reform their own life and be that light and testimony in their church. Our goal isn't just to get ourselves hurt by, keep, by pounding people with the gospel. We move on, and believe me, God will still save people. You need to trust the sovereignty of God, church. We need to, we need to trust the sovereignty of God. This leads us to number three, discipling converts. Verses 7 through 11. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul goes to a Gentile man's house, a man who feared God as Cornelius did whose home is right near the synagogue. And he apparently continues sharing the gospel with a predominantly Gentile audience. And just when you think no one was listening to what Paul is speaking, because we don't have any record of any converts till this point, Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue, a prominent man there, he trusts Christ with his household. It's an important point. It is many times when we don't think anyone really is listening, is paying attention, is, is hearing what we're sharing, that God opens the door to the gospel. A very important point to be made that's missed by many in the church today. It's so crucial that men understand how important it is that they lead their homes. Our culture has diminished the role of men in the home to simply being the guy that works a job to pay the bills. I just want to share some studies that have been done in outreach in the church culture today to give us some of the startling results. And one of the things that I think really shocked me right up front was I didn't know how much of a difference it makes if a man comes to saving faith first in his family compared to the rest. Listen to this. Did you know that if a child is the first person in a household to come, become a Christian, there's a 3.5% probability everyone in the household will follow? Now, these are stats from evangelistic you know, opportunities that have been done across the states. If a mother is the first to become a Christian... There is a 17% probability everyone in the household will follow. 
Now, this is where it gets startling right here. If the father is first, there is a 93% probability everyone else in the household will follow. I think we've missed the mark in who we're trying to reach, church. I don't say that we don't reach the others. I'm not arguing that at all. Don't even hear what I'm not saying. But do you understand how important it is for men to be men and men to reach other men? One of the ways that we can make an impact in our nation is to start ministering more to men. And let me tell you, this was really an eye-opener when I studied this out. There should be a greater interest in our church to grow in our faith as men. And what I mean by growing in our faith is so that you can reach other men with the gospel, men. There's a huge gap that's not been filled in our culture when it comes to men leading their homes. And it becomes even more crucial for the men in the local church context. You see, God speaks to Paul in a vision and tells him clearly that he has nothing to be afraid of. And he should speak up. Because there are many that would come to saving faith in Christ. No harm would come to Paul, so he should proceed with boldness. I want to ask you for a moment to just consider that God's not just saying this to Paul, but imagine with me that God is saying this to you. Imagine being given this directive by God yourself to proclaim the gospel, and God encourage you specifically to not be afraid because there are many here in the city of Springfield that he has that are already his own, you just need to share the gospel with them. What would your response be? How would it change your approach to evangelism if you received a direct word from God? Here's the deal. You already have. It's right here. You and I already have a direct word from God. And it continues to speak to us. The word speaks to us directly from God. If you've read this past week, you would have encountered verses like Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Or in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself shared in the same, that is Jesus, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
You see, God already has these promises in His Word. And the truth is, we just don't believe Him. Let's just be up front. We tell ourselves all the time, we tell others all the time that we believe God is sovereign. Yet we live as if He isn't. Do we not? Do we ever find ourselves entrapped, if you will, in trying to worry about what we need to take care of this next week? So much so that we don't believe God can help us at all. We'll figure it out our own. I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever had something major in your life coming up that you knew was a problem you didn't really want to deal with? And you tried to solve it with everybody else's advice but God. You ever done that? You ever done, you ever try to solve something based on your own best interest or intuition, if you will? You ever thought you knew better than what God's word would say? I know I have. Done it many times in ministry. Oh, I know enough of the Bible. I already know. I've already dealt with, I don't know if you've ever done this. I've already dealt with similar people before. I've got this figured out. And what happens when we don't have the Holy Spirit working in our hearts during that time? Do we respond in the way God would want us to? You see, the truth is, we don't have anything to fear as believers because the fear of death has been removed by Christ. Child of God, you have a Savior who's already tasted death for you. He's already freed you from sin and the control of the devil who makes all fear death. You see, the fear of death is what keeps many in bondage to this day. Although the practical living out of this is manifested in different ways. You see, some people, there are those that fear death which only then prompts them to enjoy everything in life without wishing to handle any of the repercussions that may come with pursuing pleasure. Pleasure and temporary excitement is what this life is all about. After all, when we are done, we're done forever. I don't have to worry about anything. Once, once I'm done here, it's over. Many hold to this view thinking that they simply cease to exist at the end. There are those who fear death, and it causes the exact opposite reaction in their life. They're afraid of everything and everyone. They no longer enjoy any of the good things in life because they're constantly afraid that if they do enjoy something good, that something bad is going to follow up. Their idea in this life is that if I enjoy anything that is pleasurable or, in, or, or a gift from God even that I am going to follow right, off, right after that with some suffering. So why even try? Why even enjoy time away from this life? Their idea of death is fear that they live with that haunts them all the time. They're the people that you will constantly find as you're trying to enjoy something, they're trying to diminish that enjoyment. Because they themselves can't enjoy the same thing you do. They're anger that others actually enjoy life to the point of ruining good times with family and friends. You ever met people like that? They've had a hard week, they need you to know about it. 
And it isn't just that they had a hard week, their whole life is that experience. They're afraid of death. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, we no longer ought to live in fear of death. We sing about this all the time, but I don't know that it resonates with our soul. Jesus conquered death. Does that mean anything to us? When the world is going crazy with COVID-19, does that mean anything to us? Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Listen, the power of sin in your life has been removed, believer. You are going to struggle. Bank on it. But Jesus has given you all you need. He's left His Holy Spirit, which is actually more advantageous for you than if He was here present. Most believers don't believe Jesus' own words on that. Well, if I was around when Jesus was, I would be better off. No, you wouldn't. Jesus said it's more beneficial that the Holy Spirit comes. If Jesus has already taken care of all of this for us, then why do we still live in a defeated state, many of us? Why do so many of us still live defeated lives? You see, sin unfortunately brings about that fear. Because as believers, we know the wages of sin is what? Death. We know that truth. And unfortunately for many of us, we have not completely registered in our hearts and in our minds that we are no longer under that penalty of sin. We have glory awaiting. Yes, wicked sinners as we are, we've been redeemed. So when we continually sin, the default mechanism for many of us is to believe that God's Word can't really be true. It can't really be true. I'm afraid. We fear that we're once again under the judgment of God in a salvific state. In a salvific sense. Listen, church, the whole world is afraid of death right now. I don't know if you've been paying attention. The whole world is terrified of death right now. And if there's one place that the world needs to know, there is life, it's the church. You've got an option, parents, in what you're raising. Warriors, as in anxious worry, or warriors as in battle soldiers ready. You pick which one you want to raise. And you decide whether you're going to believe this for what it says. The church ought to be the solution because it has the ultimate solution. That is Jesus Christ who conquered death. The very thing this whole world fears. Listen, church, we have a guaranteed outcome, and so many of us are not living in that. 
Can I, can I repeat this? We have a guaranteed outcome. It's guaranteed. God who does not lie has promised us certain things. Why do we live in fear the way we do? Look, it's time for us as a church to understand that life comes from Christ. And this world is only going to keep proclaiming death every single day. And that is the grip that Satan holds on this world. He makes everyone fear because of death, because they know judgment is coming. The problem for many of them is they're not looking for the solution. They're just trying as much as they can to keep trying to dissuade themselves from making sure that they can pass on in life and wait as long as they can before they, can, they finally have to taste death. Which is why, I don't know how many of you know this, but a lot of the rich folks that own much of what this world's economy entails, they constantly are going through procedures and swapping their blood to prolong life because they fear death. They know judgment's coming. What we have is a Savior who's conquered that. And we, church, need to live in life, not in death. It's disheartening to see the lack of vitality in the church today. Many believers don't seem to care more about their fight when it comes to their walk with God. It makes you wonder whether the Spirit of God indwells a person like that at times. Listen, church, it's disheartening for me sometimes as a pastor to see people that I know there's so much more that God wants for them in life. And they're always crushed. They're always anxious. They're always broken. And it makes me wonder, is the gospel not enough? Has what Christ done not been enough for us? On the other side of the spectrum is the believer that struggles continually with sin. And they wonder why they've really been forgiven or not. Because they keep struggling. But I want you to know, believer, that at times, when you are in that low place in your walk with God, you need to know that God's holding on to you more than you're holding on to Him. In fact, the Good Shepherd cares for you more than you think you're caring for yourself. The problem with so many of us is we have the self-determination that creeps up in our Christian walk, that we assume that we are now all that is necessary to keep walking in the Christian life. Listen, grace started at grace will finish it, church. It's settled. Those that struggle with sin are Christ because the Holy Spirit is working in their lives. Listen, believer, it should, it should bother you tremendously if you never struggle with sin. That is the danger zone. And unfortunately, a lot of self-righteous Pharisees pop up in the church all the time, assume that everybody else is the only one that struggles with sin but them. 
And they very well may be very self-deceived. Scripture tells us in 1 John 2 that we can be sure that we know Him if we keep His commandments. How do you know that you know God? You take this to heart and you want to obey it. And I don't mean in a legalistic sense trying to find everything that's flawed all the time. Listen, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal plenty to you all the time. We had a great message on that a couple weeks ago. Believe me, you ask God, He will reveal. No doubt. Without any hesitation, He'll reveal what your flaws are and mine are. You see, Paul receives this encouragement from God, and he continues here in Corinth and sees many saved over a span of a year and a half. So in conclusion, here's my question. Are you settled? Are you settled? Are you convinced by the finished work of Christ? The promises in Scripture are for us as well. Particularly when it comes to the children of God and those that believe on His name. On Jesus. Listen, church, is it enough that Jesus conquered death for you? Why are we looking to everyone else to solve what they can't solve? I don't know about you, but I am one of those that studies things to an, I don't know, an exaggerated point at times. And I want to know where things are going next. And I've been fascinated by how many predictions have been wrong this past year. The only absolute is here. I've realized this this past year more so than most years. Are you distracted by the chaos in the world that is shaking your faith? Are you distracted, believer? Maybe you haven't settled because you've just gone along with the Christian church life without confidence. And you don't have the, the confidence that Paul was given because you've never made faith personal to you. You've just kind of done the church culture thing. Oh, you started and stopped. We, we, we have the start and stops in our Christian life, don't we? I'm going to read. I start. I stop. I'm going to read. I start. I stop. I'm going to pray consistently. I start and I stop. This personal faith needs to be something that's your own. And, and I know I've said this before. Your children can't live their Christian life for you. Parents, you can't live your, your children's Christian life for them. Fathers can't live it for their kids. Mothers can't live it for their kids. They can't live it for their spouses either. You can encourage one another. But each one of us has to walk with God individually as well. We all must come to faith in Christ and turn from sin. Which is many times our identity, if you will, before we come to saving faith. What's heartbreaking is seeing a lot of people take their sinful identity and somehow saying that it's sanctified by still living in it.
Listen, if you've trusted Christ, as much as you and I are lying hypocrites, God calls us saints. And I want to encourage you, too, to know that when Paul writes the church, to the church of Corinth, he calls them saints. A church that had some pretty jacked up practical living. One of the areas that we very much neglect in being settled is our theology. And our beliefs regarding who God is and what he has left for us in his word. Listen, church, I just can't stress it enough that you continually learn the Word of God. That you study, that you dig, that you find good resources continually to keep growing in your knowledge of Christ. It's absolutely essential for every follower of Jesus Christ to learn from others that study the Word of God as well. And to grow in their knowledge of God. See, Paul doesn't just preach the gospel and leave the Corinthians hanging. He stays with them a year and a half to build their theological framework, if you will. There are areas that we are all unsettled, church. We're not settled in every area. And it's important for us to be reminded that Christ will finish the work that he started in us. And church, he will make abundantly clear the areas that we need to settle as time goes on. Bank on it. Truth is, many of us have many areas that we're not even aware of right now. And we need to be willing to hear what God says on that. But church, there is a guaranteed outcome for all of us. One day we will see him face to face. We should not fear death. Nothing that's going on this past year should cause us to fear what is the termination, if you will, or the exit to a greater eternal life that's awaiting all of us that are followers of Christ.